The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Everyone, welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Jessica Hall, retirement reporter for Market Watch, and with me today is Ken Dykewall, CEO of AgeWave. Welcome, Ken, and thank you for being here. Great to see you and great to be with you. So next year, we're going to hit peak 65 when about 12,000 people a day will turn 65. What does this mean for society and how will will it affect issues like our finances, healthcare, and housing? Well, let me back up just one second, and this may shock your viewers and listeners, but throughout 99% of human history, we're told by medical anthropologists, the average life expectancy was under 18. So there have always been a few 60 and 70 and 80 year olds, but not very many. Um, And my wife and I went to see Top Gun last year, and we were marveling at the fact that Tom Cruise did a lot of his own stunts. And he was 59 when they when they shot that movie. I looked it up when Cocoon was made and the little old man, Wilford Brimley, was the lead. He was 49 years old at the time. So a couple of things are happening. One of them is, is that due to breakthroughs in healthcare and pharmaceuticals and surgery and nutrition during the 20th century, antibiotics, um, for the first time in history, most of us are going to live long lives. And I've been at meetings. I was at one at Stanford this week where speakers said that because of impending breakthroughs, uh, kids born this year are going to live 120 to 150 years. So, so number one, people are living longer. Number two, we got this boomer generation. Uh, and that's the reason for the large number of people turning 65. Uh, but it's not just one year, it's decades of it, and it's 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 the future. And the third point I want to make is that we're entering a new age of aging where all of a sudden we see Martha Stewart on the cover of Sports Illustrated, Bathing Suit Issue, and we see Helen Mirren kind of, you know, killing it at 78, and no one's going to tell Oprah that she's too old to do anything. And, you know... Harrison Ford came back as Indiana Jones at 81. So the when we turn old is getting moved back about 20 years. And mm-hmm. there's a whole new set of expectations and hopes and dreams and beliefs about what's possible when you turn 50 and 60 and 70 than for our grandparents' generation. So you mentioned the Martha Stewart, um, Sports Illustrated, and the Rolling Stones recently released a new Dropped album. Dropped their first album in 18 years. Yeah. New album. So what does that do? Um, what does that mean for ageism and society's views on getting older? You know, I, I got involved in the in the world of gerontology uh, when I was 24. That was 49 years ago. And you didn't see 80-year-old rock and rollers. You just mm-hmm. didn't. Um, you know, rock and roll is the province of young people. So all of a sudden, when you see the Stones, who are fabulous, you know, Jagger has still got it going. Um, 
it sets a new set of role models in front of us where we see John Glenn 20 years ago going up in space at 77. And we see Jagger still being Jagger at 80. Um, it makes us all scratch our head and say, you know, when am I old? Maybe aging. We just did a study on the new age of aging. And people said that for their parents' generation, you turned old when you were about 60. And now it's about 80 or 85. And in the future, it may even be later. Yeah. So the U.S. recently got a C-plus rating on its retirement system, and it put it at, at 22nd place in a ranking of 47 countries. What are we doing so wrong, and what can we learn from other countries? Well, I'm not an economist, but, I'll, but I am a wise guy, so I'll tell you a few things that I think we're doing wrong. First of all, we don't educate people about money and about compounding and about stocks and bonds and annuities. And, and so a lot of people wander into their later life and are kind of clueless about what they ought to be doing. Only 33% of the U.S. population has a financial advisor. I have a financial advisor. I find him very, and my wife, we both find him very valuable, very useful. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think it's a do-it-yourself project. I don't think it is. Another thing that's happened is that we did away with guaranteed pensions. A lot of people don't realize that the pension movement really kicked in during World War II when there was the government put on a wage freeze. And so mm -hmm. unions that had a very strong voice said, OK, if we can't give more current compensation, let's give later life peace of mind. And a decade or two ago, a lot of the pensions started disappearing, the guaranteed pensions. And they became kind of do-it-yourself, 401ks, 403bs. And not a lot of people take advantage of those. Some people don't have access to them. And most people don't max them out, which is nutty. And the third thing I'll say is that um, we have come to think of retirement as something that you ought to do when you're around 63, 64. What we've seen in our studies that a lot of people are saying, wait a minute, if I'm going to live 80 or 90 or 100 years, which sounds like science fiction, I know, um, maybe I ought to work a little longer. Maybe, you know, you got to be Bill Gates to retire and then have 30 years in front of you uh, with a very limited amount of savings. There are countries in the world that mandate savings, like in addition to a Social Security mm -hmm. type program, you must save a certain amount in Canada and Australia and other places. We don't do things like that in the United States. And so I worry that a large number of my own generation, boomers and generation comes after us, uh, Xers are going to um, struggle financially and maybe not even be able to retire when they wish. Can you talk a little bit about how the U.S. health span doesn't match our lifespan? Yeah, this is terrible. Uh, I don't know if I want to ruin the day of all your <laughs> listeners, but we think we're the greatest. And I love America. I've been to, I don't know, 40, 50 countries around the world. And I come home to America and it's my favorite country. I just love it. And I love our democracy. But it's got its collateral downside. Um Think about it this way. We have a lifespan. That's the number of years we live. Mm -hmm. We're 40th in the world with regard to lifespan. So there are 39 countries in the world that live longer than we do, even though we spend more money 
on our healthcare system and a, per person than any country in the world. So if I were running a business and I was spending a lot of money to make a product and it was a junky product, somebody would say to me, maybe you ought to do it different. But here's where it gets weird. So there's the lifespan and there's the health span. How many of those years do we spend in a state of functional health before we start to fall apart? And we're 68th in the world. We only have a 66 year health span on average in the United States. Uh, richer people have a longer health span than poorer people. Uh, white people have a longer health span than non-white people. Uh, educated people have a longer health span than less educated people. There's no equity. I mean, it's it's all over the map. So we have not created a healthcare system that will give us a health span that matches our lifespan. And I think we should be ashamed of ourselves. And it should be a question that anyone running for office has to answer. How are we going to do a better job of matching our health span to our lifespan? And what's your game plan? Because right. there isn't one. Right now, it's all about profit. It's about this organization or that organization making more money. And the outcome is very dismal in the United States. And we ought to do better. Um, I just want to remind the audience that they can submit questions in the Q&A. So, so, Ken, there was a recent AgeWay poll where retirees talked about they viewed life as the best was yet to come. Did that surprise yeah, you? It surprised me. Uh, we asked the question, you know, expecting the, what we thought was going to be an obvious answer. What part of your life was the best part of your life? And we thought people were going to say their youthful years or their 20s or 30s, young adulthood. Instead, 71% of people over 65 said the best is, e is either now or in front of me. Mm -hmm. So that's a whole new attitude. People are beginning to think that the later years of life may be a time of more resilience, more happiness, more freedom. The boomers in the United States alone are going to have 3.9 trillion hours of free time over the next 20 years. And we've never, let's call it time affluence. We've never had t so much time affluence. By the way, the, the downside of that is I've been studying retirees now for 49 years, and most of them are clueless. They just don't know what to do. You know, they the average retiree in America watches 47 hours of television a week. And um, what it, it looks to me is that we've not created a world in which we give retirees activities, we give them new ideas, we help them go back to school, we help them start new companies, we bring them back to work, we do all the kinds of things to give more purpose in people's lives, we could do better than we do right now. So 83% of those adults 65 plus say it's more important to feel useful in life than youthful in the retirement years. So is there should we be reimagining retirement? Yeah, I, I right before COVID, I spoke at a conference uh, and the other speaker was Harrison Ford. And he's a climate activist and I never met him before. And he gave a big speech about how we got to get all the young people in the world planting trees, save the planet. And I had a private meeting with him afterward where I said, are you aware of the fact that we have a billion people in the world over the age of 60 and nobody has tasked them with anything? We have the greatest concentration of intelligence, knowledge, experience, resilience, the history of Earth, mm -hmm. a billion people over 60. Sure, there are some who might have a disability 
or there are some who might be struggling, but the majority are doing fine, but we haven't given them anything useful to do. So we asked this question in our study because you turn on the TV and you see a lot of action about being youthful, mm-hmm. looking youthful, dyeing your hair to be youthful, um, dressing to be youthful. You know, if I hadn't seen you, Jessica, for 10 years and I said, it's great to see you, you're sure looking young today, you'd smile. But if I said, boy, you're sure looking older today, (laughs) you'd feel like you were just insulted. And so we've created a world in which youthfulness is kind of the goal. Yet Mm -hmm. we when we asked in our study, would you rather be youthful or youthful? Like you said, the answer came back. Eighty three percent said useful. Mm -hmm. And yet we haven't tasked or created a world in which older adults are 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 being utilized in meaningful ways as mentors, as tutors, as teachers, as entrepreneurs, as um, elders. You know, I was in Kenya a few years ago and spending time with the Maasai tribe. And with the Maasai, older people are called elders. Younger Mm -hmm. people are called junior elders. And the idea is that people seek to become an elder, that it's Mm -hmm. it's an aspirational uh, movement in life. In the United States, we all seek to try to stay young. But what we're seeing now is that that's kind of changing. We're seeing more and more older people, you know, when Oprah says, hey, I'm 69 on TikTok, and don't anybody tell me that I'm too old, uh, that's a turning point, you know, and she's not alone. Look at Jamie Lee Curtis just got her first Academy Award. We're seeing mm-hmm. more and more older people be proud of their age and demonstrate certain levels of wisdom and power that we've never seen on the world before. Can you talk a little bit about your idea of creating an elder corp that would recruit older adults to volunteer and do service projects? Yeah, here's a terrible thing. Uh, so I'm sorry to hit you with another bad one, but um, we have in the United States about 70 million retirees and only 24% of them retire, uh, excuse me, volunteer at all. Mm-hmm. And we know from lots of research that people who who volunteer stay youthful longer um, by feeling useful. They stay happier and they are healthier. So it's a weird thing that three quarters of our massive elder population doesn't give back. And, you know, I'm a one of the degrees I have is in psychology. So that's hoarding. People hoard their knowledge, they hoard their wealth, they hoard their their views, or they live back in the day. You know, they don't understand young people. They don't care about their needs and interests. And that's not good. We need to be more inter- interdependent. You know, make a friend with a younger person. Uh, mm-hmm. go, to, go to the movies with people of different ages. Uh, join a book club of people of different ages. Uh, go join the boys and girls club in your community and see if you can help some of these young kids because the young people Mm -hmm. are going through a rough time right now. Uh, Older people last week, study came out that said that people over 65 have got the greatest amount of wealth of any group in the country, About two thirds own their homes. About two thirds of them are paid off. Um, They've got more wisdom. Uh, Laura Carsonson at Stanford University did a study and there's a U-curve of happiness that when your kid, they're happy. And then there's happiness in our later years. 
there's mm -hmm. more freedom. We could be doing a better job um, deploying our older people and they would feel better for it. it. You know, when you give, you get back, make right. new friends. Uh, you feel good about yourself. And I'm not saying full-time job. We did a study where we asked people, what's the right amount of give back time? And they said about three to four hours a week. So it's mm -hmm. not a lot, but it'll change your world. Um, speaking of working in- Oh, I'm sorry. So I didn't completely answer your oh, question. Sorry. Um, I was taken when I did my homework to see that Sergeant Shriver and John Kennedy created a Peace Corps. And mm -hmm. it really got everybody's attention and it was a good idea. And there, you know, lots of people became Peace Corps volunteers. We could create an elder corps to make it easier for people to tap in or to make it a better alignment of their skills and knowledge. I was brought to Philadelphia a few years ago because somebody had put together a great volunteer program for older people and they wanted me to see it. And I came in the room and there were about 200 elders licking envelopes. And I thought, that's not it. I mean, these are experienced executives and nurses and doctors and homemakers and parents. And let's, let's let them do things where they can use the best of what they've got. And let's make it something that people aspire to join when they finish their main careers, that they become a part of the elder corps. That's what I'd like to see happen. So um, according to an H-Wave poll, 59% of retirees and pre-retirees want to work in some capacity in retirement. Is that due to financial reasons or personal fulfillment reasons or both? Jessica, there's been a flip-flop since I've worked in the gerontology field. Uh, back when I was young, people tried to retire as young as possible, and it was a sign of status mm -hmm. and success. If you met somebody and they were 53 and they were retired, you say congratulations um, because they had retired and they no longer had a toil. Now you see the most successful people want to keep working. You know, Bill Gates went from being a CEO to being a, a philanthropist. Um, the highest rate of entrepreneurial success is now people over 55. Um, I think that um, people are saying that they looked at their parents and we're not growing old to become our parents. Boy, is that <laughs> not happening. Um, and they say, you know what? I'm going to live a lot more years than my parents or grandparents did. So I think I need to work a few extra years to build my nest egg. Smart. But about an equal number of people say they want to work because they like the action. They like the stimulation. They like being with different people, especially now that folks are coming back to work again. They like the social contact. So I think and, you know, when Social Security was crafted, there was a 35, excuse me, a 25 percent unemployment level. And so mm -hmm. we tried to get older people out of the workforce to make room for the young. Now there are job shortages. And we could use some of those older workers to fill some menial jobs, some, you know, I read a study that it takes about two to three weeks to train a Walmart worker uh, to be able to do a good job, but it could take 10 years to train a brain surgeon. And we're about to see a lot of doctors retire. We're about right. to see a lot of engineers retire, a lot of FBI agents retire. There's a lot of fields where 
people are just going to migrate out and we're going to have shortages. And so maybe instead of trying to scratch our head and say, how are we going to get by with fewer people and bring in machine learning, which is going to come in for sure. But how do we get some of our seasoned workers to stay a bit longer? And what, what we've seen in our studies, Jessica, is that people say they want to keep working, but they don't want to work as hard. So maybe right. four days a week or maybe eight months a year or maybe on projects where they can work for three years and then take a year off. So we're going to have to get flexible about our concept of, of, uh, of work scheduling. Okay. So about you were talking earlier about how not everybody has retirement savings and only four in 10 have a retirement plan in place and the rest say they'll figure it out when the time comes. What do we need to do to better educate people about savings and helping to boost their retirement safety nets? Well, if I throw out a really loony idea, I'd say we ought to start learning about money when we're in high school. You know, what did Einstein say? The ninth greatest power in the world is the power of compounding. That you, you start putting some money aside when you're young and mm-hmm. it grows. It's this crazy thing, you know, doubles every seven years. And you start doubling your money, get that process going when you're young, and you're going to be in great shape. You start thinking about it when you're 62, you're in trouble. The median amount of money saved for retirement the night before retirement in America last year was $134,000. Now, that's not going to get you very far. Mm-mm. And But there are resilient choices. Um, take a housemate. What's so terrible about that? Think about that futuristic show from the 1980s, The Golden Girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, four gals. They were in their 50s, by the way, uh, living together. Not a bad idea. You know, what's the big idea that we all ought to have our own home? Uh, what's another thing? You know, do some work. What's another thing? Relocate to a neighborhood, maybe near the family or the kids or grandkids, mm-hmm. uh, where the cost of living is lower. Um, mm-hmm. You know, scale your house down. Maybe go Airbnb, uh, the fastest growing segment in Airbnb or what they call modern elders. Rent out a mm-hmm. room to a local college professor or a young person who's you know writing a book. Uh, you make a new friend and you make some money. There's lots of resilient choices that can be made um, to have your money last longer. And one of the best is to work a little bit more. We have a question from the audience. Um, Bob asked, can you discuss the emotional part of retirement? We talk a lot about money, but we don't talk about the emotions of retirement. Is there- yeah, I'd say it, it comes in stages. Usually the first few years after people retire, there's a combination. There's liberation. Hey, I don't have to get up early anymore. I don't have to report to a boss. I don't have to have all those pressures on me. But the downside is, who am I? What am I doing? Right. How do I fill my day? When people ask me, who am I? What do I tell them? And so there's disorientation. And for some people, depression. And the realization that retirement is not for them. I, I was an advisor to Lee Iacocca years ago. And when he retired, there was a big cover story in Fortune magazine, how I flunked retirement. And some people flunk retirement. It's just not for them. But then usually after two or three years, people kind of find their groove. Mm. They find the people they want to hang out with. Maybe they volunteer a bit. Maybe they get a new purpose. 
maybe they just get more relaxed in a non-working lifestyle. And usually happiness starts to lift, anxiety drops, sense of resilience grows, and people start to like that stage of life far, far better. And the word we've heard in focus groups all over the country, by the way, all over the world is freedom. Mm-hmm. Those people who are younger think, oh, retirees, they're miserable because they got a grumpy neighbor. But a lot of retirees say they're more free than they've ever felt in their life. And maybe it's because they're empty nesters. Maybe it's because they don't have a job. They have a chance to watch the movies they like or read a good book or maybe write a book or maybe volunteer at the church or the mosque or the synagogue or maybe, you know, become an activist about regarding a cause that they believe in. And here's another thing. A lot of older people think about, well, I'll, I'll spend more time with my family. But there's a lot of young people and there's a lot of younger generations that are scared right now that are confused, that think America's lost its mind and could use a little bit of resilience and could use a little bit of mentoring and, and, and wisdom from older people. So don't just think about your own family. Think about people in the inner city. Think about other families who maybe could use a grandma or a grandpa or just a, a friend who can give them a better sense of things are going to be okay. That's great. That's a great idea. Um, When um, we get another question from the audience, um, Christopher asked, how do we convince companies that people over the age of 55 still offer value when many industries go out of their way to exit those people? It's a tricky thing because we live in a world that's fraught with ageism. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking for the next young tech wizard. And that's, that's great. But more and more, as we look around, we see that the product preponderance of CEOs in this country are over the age of 55. Then more and more older people are staying on the job. They've got a big collection of clients if you're in a sales role. And they've also got some wisdom. And by the way, they grew up as a generation, um, older adults, where you stayed on a job. You didn't hop jobs every few months or have side hustles all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's just coming about um, because we're seeing more and more older men and women working, whether it's news broadcasters or commentators or athletes or teachers or philanthropists or do-gooders. More and more, we're seeing a little gray in their hair. And I'm not talking about all the ads that we see where older people are falling down and can't get up that older people are portrayed seven times worse than younger people in the ads. And a lot of them for obvious reasons are pharmaceutical ads. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we and talk I just think it's one of those things, a little bit like when the boomer women entered the workforce in the 1970s, people mm-hmm. said, we don't need women in the workforce, but they were so good mm-hmm. that the workforce rules, regulations, and attitudes change to embrace women. I think what we're gonna see over the next decade, I'm sure of this, is that more and more 55, 60, 65, 70 year olds are gonna continue to work or they're gonna replant themselves or they will respond to job openings and 
people are going to love them because they've got talent and experience. So we had another question from um, Ara who asked, what's your opinion on multi-generational homes or senior living communities with activities? Is it key to having a purposeful, enjoyable retirement? And some people may not be able to afford these places. So what do you do to socialize if you can't afford them? All right. So when I was growing up, there were three flavors of ice cream, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. And if you went to a fancy restaurant, sometimes they had uh, something else. And there were four television networks, three major ones and one a public television network. And now there's a thousand TV streaming networks and there's a thousand flavors of ice cream. And I think that retirement living, there's lots of choices. So, for example, I'm 73. My wife and I are both still working. We're living in the same home that we raised our kids in. Uh, and we love it. Somebody else wants to live in a community of retirees. There's lots of programs and there's lots of activities. Last week, I spoke at a convention of people who run these kinds of facilities and the mm -hmm. residents are happy. Then there are other people that want to live in communes. You say communes, you mean like with Jimi Hendrix posters on the wall? No, I mean uh, homes that are shared, mm -hmm. and they but they want to live with people roughly their own age, or since there are so many more women than men, because women are biologically superior and live longer than men, there's groups of women that are saying, Hey, why don't we get a house? Why don't we get two houses together an apartment in the city and a house in the country? Um, doesn't have to be heterosexual matchups. For housing anymore and i i was a great panther when i was a young man and maggie kuhn the head of the great panthers and the founder lived in an intergenerational commune and i don't know that may be the b biggest idea for the future that why are we hanging around with only with people who were born you know within a year or two of when we were born wouldn't we all be better off if we mixed it up again the way it was throughout the first hundred thousand years of human history, when different generations, mostly because we were an agricultural based world mm -hmm. up until the Industrial Revolution, lived with people of different ages. And that seemed to work just fine. And so but then I'd say. I'm not here to say that one way is the best way. I think that people, you know, ought to think about what would work for them, maybe try a few things out. I think we ought to have trial retirement living mm -hmm. uh, opportunities. And then if it doesn't work, change it. Um, a lot of people think that when they retire, they're making a permanent decision. And more and more now we're seeing people, they try out life in the suburbs and it's, they decide, no, I think I'd rather live in the city. There's public transportation. There's restaurants, there's movie theaters, there's shows, there's more action and mm -hmm. they relocate. And I think that boomers, which different than the generation in front of us or our parents' generation, we changed majors in college. We changed marriages. We even changed religions. I think that reinventing oneself is going to become a normal part of life and there will be coaches, life coaches, therapists, training programs, schools, universities. I was at Stanford this week and they've got this program for older adults. 
and Harvard's got one also, to come back to school. And I think every college in America ought to have such a program. Maybe you live in a dorm for a couple of years and you go back to college. You've got a lot of campuses cool. that are that are that have extra rooms or mm -hmm. that have great teachers and cool kind of social life. Why not have more older people participate? We have uh, another question from Neil who asked in the book called Lifespan by David Sinclair. He says that aging by definition is a disease. Do you agree with that or disagree with that and why? I disagree with it. And, and David Sinclair, you know, who's a PhD, he's got a position at Harvard and at MIT, which is no small feat, is, is quite brilliant. But as I maybe I'm old, you know, I'm 30 years older than David, maybe it's more of a philosophical point of view, but I think that this whole earth is an ecosystem and things, kind of, you know, there's an arc to life. And if all of a sudden we said aging is a disease, let's cause it to stop. First of all, it would probably only be the rich people that would find their way to that. Second, I get a little troubled that David is also trying to get you to buy his pro his vitamin products. Um, and, uh, and third, I think there is something natural and beautiful about growing up and growing older and the idea of trying to freeze all of that First of all, I think it would create a disruption to every single, everything in the world. And I also think that aging, whether, now I understand that there are certain, and David talks about this, uh, you know, jellyfish are immortal, cancer cells are immortal, mm -hmm. um, but all living things seem to have an arc to their life. And I, for one, think that that's a, that's a useful thing. But I do know that there's more and more people that are trying to see if they can end aging. And um, I'm not so sure. I personally don't agree that aging is a disease that should be fixed. Um, and just one last question. Do you have plans to ever retire? Or are you going to keep working as hard as you always have been? So I'll give you an honest answer. This year, I'm beginning to think that I ought to slow down a little bit. Mm. And I want to have a little more balance in my life, a chance to have some more fun with my wife, uh, sleep in a little bit more. During COVID, I gave 350 keynotes, wrote three books. And, no, I, I wrote three books and I did two PBS specials. And mm. a few months ago, I just found myself burned out. And so I'm at an age now where... You know, funny things happens when you grow older that you begin to count from the end, not the beginning. When you're 35, you realize you've lived 35 years so far. But when you're 73, you, you think, wow, I may only have 10 summers uh, or 15 more years to enjoy my kids. And that's a finite number. And so I don't want to retire, but I'd like to have a better balance between work and leisure. I'd like to kind of partially retire. That makes sense. By the way, we don't even have good words. You know, is that unretiring? Is that semi-retiring? Is that not retiring? We need to, we need you know, to work I'm on the words. I'm the expert on all of this. And I don't know that, there are, that, that we've created the right language yet for what many of us are hoping for. Well, I will Ken, tell you this, you though, so and I think my work has gotten smarter and better as I've gotten older. 
And I, you know, I wrote my first book, Body Mind. I've written 19 books now. Wow. Um, I wrote my first book when I was 22, and I thought I was a pretty clever fellow. And I find that my thinking, my work, I've got a deeper perspective as I'm growing older than I had when I was a young man. And I watch my son, who's kind of a big shot in China. He's 33. But no, he's got a 33-year-old point of view. And I respect that. It's exciting to me. But he hasn't yet had kids. He hasn't been with his parents when they passed away. He hasn't had successes and failures like many of us who are a little older have had. And I think that um, there's great power, elderhood, Mm -hmm. that comes with a few extra years of life. Well, thank you so much, Ken. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for being here. I hope you you. all listen tomorrow to our next episode. Barron Senior Managing Editor Lauren R. Rublin and Healthcare Industry Reporter Josh Nathan Casas will discuss recent developments in biotech, pharma, and other segments of the healthcare market, as well as the outlook for healthcare companies and stocks. Thanks for listening. Be well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.